A listener wrote in, Without an apology, you can probably still get through these hurtful things from parents, but it's harder. I feel like, for me, getting through these things from my parents is near impossible because they're still happening. I know it's not an extreme trauma, but to me, it's super hurtful and still relevant. The fact that it is still present makes it impossible to move through. Am I wrong? Is there a way through this? I thought maybe others had the same question. They sure do. Anyone who's grown up or has had to exist in a dysfunctional family system has had this question. Today we're going to talk about how to live and participate in a family where dysfunction is still alive and well. Welcome to Substance, Not Psychobabble. I'm Vanessa Londino. So I'm going to use initials here to protect this person's confidentiality, anonymity. But AD wrote in with a really good question. And I appreciate this question because I think it comes from a pretty sincere place. And I think what this person is asking is, I want to be part of my family, but how do I do that in any kind of a realistic way or a fulfilling way or even just a sane way, right? How do I do that if the dysfunction is still there? So we're going to talk a lot today about dysfunctional dynamics and how to live with them and how to work with them. But typically, I think what AD is referring to is a family system where there's no recognition or acknowledgement of the dysfunction. In other words, there's no acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and therefore no apologies are offered. And so the dysfunctional behavior persists because no one's looking at it, no one wants to see it, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But that's really the tough situation. It's much easier to be in a situation, even if there is dysfunction, and I will define that in a second. It's much easier to be in that situation if it's acknowledged, because then you can have a conversation, you can communicate, you can actually connect. That's the issue. You can connect on it. But if there's denial or just a total failure to acknowledge that anything is going wrong in the relationship, in this case, the parent-child relationship, this is an adult person and their adult parent, then it's a really tough situation. So this is a great question. And no, you're not alone. I think a lot of people struggle with this. And there's a reason I think this struggle is so present now more than it was in generations past. So let's define dysfunction. And then I'm going to talk about why I think this is such an issue right now. What do we mean by dysfunction? Okay, for something to be functional, okay, for it to actually fulfill its function, it means that it's meeting the need that it's intended to meet. When something is dysfunctional, we basically are saying that it's not working. It's not doing the thing that it's supposed to do. What is the purpose of a family unit? What is the purpose of the parent-child relationship? Well, parents are there to meet their children's needs. And for many parents, that first inkling of what that means to them is physical needs. Keep them safe, keep their bodies protected, keep them fed, keep them warm, keep them closed, right? So there's a physical immediacy to those needs. There are emotional needs that need to be met. There are psychological needs that need to be met. There are academic needs that need to be met. There are sexual needs that need to be met. And of course, I'm not talking about sexual gratification, parent to child, that is pedophilism. I am talking about 
facilitating and helping a child grow into a healthy sexual self as a child, as an adolescent, and then as a young adult, and then into adulthood. Okay, so there are spiritual needs. There are social needs. My gosh, Vanessa, there's so many needs. Yes, and I'm going to talk about this today. In a dysfunctional family, what we're talking about when we're talking about family dysfunction is the extent to which the needs were not met. Okay, so a mildly dysfunctional family would be parents who just had, you know, character flaws. Um, They just weren't able to give kids everything they needed. The kid felt hurt about that. Okay, every family, therefore, is dysfunctional in that sense. Okay, there is no such thing as a perfectly functional family. That does not happen. Somewhere along the line, needs get missed. But there's a spectrum of dysfunction, and that's what's important for us to just sort of start with at the beginning of the podcast. Mild dysfunction could be, you know, a parent is absent because they're working all the time. Now, is that necessary? It very well could be, but it's not necessarily what the child needs in terms of the parent being present. Well, you know, parents have to provide. Yes, they do. So the parent is sacrificing one aspect of the child's needs to meet another aspect of the child's needs. I'm not blaming a parent for that kind of situation. I'm just saying it's not ideal, right? The child is not getting their need for presence met or for play, all of those things that happen in the presence of another person. So that might be mild dysfunction. It's also mild sometimes when the child understands it. Like, I understand why this need isn't being met because there's a severe limitation on the parent. And so it sort of mitigates itself, okay? If a parent has low conflict resolution skills, they don't really know how to talk things out with their kid, but there's a lot of love, and we sort of brush right over it, we skip over it, but we're also not hurting each other, we're not ignoring each other, okay? There's a spectrum here, okay? And then when you get into extreme dysfunction, we're talking about abuse, okay, where parents leverage their power and their authority over children to force them into behaviors, that's abuse, could be verbal, physical, sexual, psychological, spiritual, all kinds of abuse. Um, Active addiction is a severely dysfunctional state when you have a parent who is simply not sober. They're not present. They're not in the room with the child. You know, children, hopefully, hopefully are not using drugs. So you've got a four-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old who is in the sober mind of a child, but you've got an adult who is severely impaired in their ability to be present with that child in the sober mind of the child. So active addiction, and depending on the substance, some substances have less drama and violence associated with the addiction. Um, If a parent is a heavy marijuana user. I've worked with kids in therapy whose parents were high every single day. And it's painful for them as adults. The parent was not present. They weren't there totally. And that is, it's an abandonment. It feels like an abandonment to the child. Um, Alcohol addiction is very different. An alcoholic home is a chaotic, sometimes violent, very abandoning home environment for the child because the effects of alcohol are so strong and they take the parents so far away from the kid. What parents do and sacrifice to supply their addiction creates chaos in the home. The biggest wound is very often abandonment in that the kid feels that the parent is choosing the substance over them. 
And that could be any addiction. Uh, Those are substance addictions. It could be a process addiction like work or sex or gambling. Um, I believe some parents are addicted to travel. Um, You know, I've worked with kids in therapy situations where the parents just weren't there. Like I'm talking missed birthdays, missed ceremonies, missed really important events in the child's life because they were traveling with friends or you know, on another cruise. It's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's a sort of a luxury problem, but it does exist. So in any kind of addiction situation, the wound there is very often abandonment, and it is an extremely dysfunctional situation for kids. I would also throw severe narcissism into an extremely dysfunctional situation because the personality, really any personality disorder, um, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, any kind of personality disorder where the parent's entire world is rotating around their own personality needs, which is what makes it a disorder. You know, everybody has what we would call, quote unquote, borderline tendencies. Um, everybody can be prone to narcissistic moments, <laughs> narcissistic traits. But when it becomes sort of what we call a disorder is when it has taken over more aspects of the personality of the person than not, okay? Growing up in that is severely dysfunctional because all of the focus is on the parent. And then the child becomes a mirror for the parent instead of the other way around. So that's what we mean by dysfunction. It means the needs are not being met. The most damaging aspect of dysfunction for the adult child In childhood, the most damaging aspects of dysfunction are that parents are not present, they're not available, they're not empathizing, they're not meeting the needs of the child. That's the damage in childhood. As adults, once we get into adulthood and we start noticing our childhood, we start processing it, maybe we go to therapy, maybe we're just mature, maybe we have our own children and we think, wow, I would never do this with my kid. Why did my parents do this? You know, I hear that a lot from my clients who were parents. The most damaging part of dysfunction for the adult child is the denial of it. It's the unwillingness to acknowledge it. Now, why is that so damaging? Because it invalidates the legitimate pain of the adult child. Where there is an unmet need, there is typically a coping mechanism. And the fact that the need went unmet can be painful in and of itself for the child. But the coping mechanisms that are developed as adults to compensate for the unmet need in childhood, especially if it was unmet in like a chronic way, if you had a need, a legitimate need as a child that went unmet chronically, it just was not met, like a need for empathy or a need for stability or a need for presence. Okay, these are non-negotiable, huge needs that all children have, all people have. In childhood, if that need goes unmet chronically, there's going to be a coping mechanism attached to it. Okay. And this is, if you want to go back in the stack, listen to Connect the Dots. That's what that podcast is about. Connecting our unmet needs with our coping mechanisms so that we understand ourselves as adults. Why do I do this thing? Well, if it's an unhealthy coping mechanism, there was probably an unmet need. Okay, but as adults, those coping mechanisms, they are our responsibility to deal with, but it was our parents' responsibility to meet that need. And the most painful part of the adult-child relationship is when children realize that and they go to their parents and they want closure. They want to forgive. They want reconciliation. They want connection, but the parent doesn't acknowledge it. So it invalidates the pain. 
it gaslights the adult child in their own experience. What does that do? It causes self-doubt. When you're being gaslit, and I think everybody knows what this term means, but briefly, to gaslight somebody means to deny them their own experience. And if you're the person doing the gaslighting, it means that you said something or did something that you are now saying you didn't say or do, okay? That's a gaslight. And it comes from a play called Gaslight. You can go back and research that on your own. But to gaslight somebody means to cause them to question their own lived experience, okay, in a way that invalidates it. What does it do to the person who's being gaslit? They can't trust their own mind and body. Like, well, did that happen? I mean, my memory is this, but you're telling me you didn't do that. Or I remember when this happened, but you're telling me that never happened. That's a gaslight. And it causes us to kind of go crazy. I mean, it's crazy making. That's actually what happens in the play. And then it became a movie. Why else is this so damaging? Because we don't capitalize on the growth potential. Remember that pain is the path of growth. Pain is functional. Pain is worthwhile. It's worth delving into. It's worth dealing with. And if we're in pain in the adult-child relationship and we want that pain acknowledged, it opens up a whole place of growth for both the parent and the adult child. The children can grow. I'm talking about adult children. Can grow in their self-assurance, their self-worth. It can reinforce their own self-respect. You know, I needed this and, you know, this happened instead. And when a parent says, you know what, you're right. What that communicates to the child is you have worth, you have respect. I didn't meet you in that need, but that doesn't mean that need is illegitimate. You deserve that. When parents don't acknowledge that, the message that they're sending is, if I couldn't give that to you, you didn't either deserve to have that need met or that need is illegitimate. And one way or another, we fail to grow, Parents get to grow in their character and in their wisdom when they listen to their children. So what's the antidote to dysfunction? It's actually very simple. It's just not easy. The antidote to dysfunction is acknowledgement. That's how you reverse the effect. Now, think about what an antidote is. You know, you drink poison and it goes throughout your body and it's a toxin and it could kill you. And then if you take the antidote, it neutralizes and reverses the effect of the toxin. Acknowledgement can reverse the effects of dysfunction. I have seen adult children in my therapy practice who have had such healing conversations with their parents as adults that it's as if not only the dysfunction never happened, but there's like a covering of love and grace and appreciation over it that's like nothing else. These kids appreciate their parents more for acknowledging it than kids do who never had the deficit in the first place. Are you with me? It's a beautiful thing when parents acknowledge the deficit. What does that require? Well, it requires empathy. <laughs> Why does it require empathy? Because we have to connect to the pain of the unmet need. We have to look at someone, and this is true of any relationship, when we have to acknowledge and apologize and own our wrongs, we have to connect to the pain that our mistakes or our deficits or our wrongdoing or our aggression, whatever it is that we've done that has left another person with an unmet need, when we connect with their pain, 
that must have really hurt you. You must have felt so abandoned by me. You must have felt so confused. Whatever the emotion is, there's a painful emotion on the other side of of an unmet need, right? When we connect with that pain, we're showing empathy. What else does acknowledgement require? Humility. You know, the root of the word humility is humus, which means earth, and it means to be low, low to the ground, not up in the clouds expecting myself to be some kind of grand person who never makes mistakes, but rather low to the earth, low to the ground. It's the acceptance that we're human, that we're earth, that we're fallible, and that that need was legitimate. And maybe I couldn't give it to you because of a situation in our lives that just made it impossible. Or maybe I couldn't give it to you because of a character flaw. Or maybe I couldn't give it to you, and this is where you really have to be humble, because of pride. I couldn't meet you there because my own ego wouldn't let me. Mm, That's tough stuff. That's acknowledgement. That's real humility. And then the other thing that acknowledgement requires is reality. What do I mean by reality? I mean, human beings have needs. These needs did, in fact, exist. And they did, in fact, go unmet by this child at some point or maybe many points throughout the lifespan. This is reality, or this is their reality, and either one needs to be validated for the relationship to grow. Okay, there's plenty of time. You've heard me say this before. There is plenty of time to clear up perceptions after someone has been validated. But the first thing you do is say, you know what, I get it. I understand why you feel that way. And if they're right, then we acknowledge you're right. Your perception of this is right. I can agree with it. It's not pretty. I don't like it, but it's true. Or we might say, I do understand why you feel that way, but I don't know about your perception. Can we talk about that? But either way, it has to be validated. But in a really dysfunctional family system, empathy, humility, and even a commitment to reality are often absent. And parents can sort of live in a fantasy that absolves them from any responsibility for their children's pain. And those fantasies can look like a number of things, okay? The fantasy could look like, you know, they truly believe that they met all of their children's needs despite what their children say. Oh, you're just being dramatic. Oh, you're just being, you know, high maintenance. You were fine. Okay, that's a fantasy. If a child is saying, no, this happened, this hurt, or I never got this from you, that's reality. That is their lived experience. But some parents do live in the fantasy that I did everything I could and everything I could was everything you needed. Or the fantasy is if a child complains, again, an adult child or even a child child, right? At any point, a child parent relationship, if the child complains that a need is going unmet, the parent can delegitimize the need. Oh, you have plenty. You should be grateful for everything you did receive. Okay, that may be true, but there may have been some legitimate needs that went unmet. Okay, the fantasy could look like, and this is a big one, well, we did our best. And that can be a very emotionally manipulative statement. Okay, because it's supposed to mean that unmet needs shouldn't hurt. It's interesting. It's a real emotional manipulation because it immediately guilts the child into silence. So instead of being direct and saying, when you say that, when you tell me about unmet needs, if I'm in the parent role, I feel ashamed. I feel angry at you. I feel inadequate. I feel bewildered at how you could focus on that after all we gave you. I mean, there's so many ways we can have a conversation about that. But when parents do the 
I did my best, we did our best. It is a blanket statement meant to guilt the child or the adult child into silence. You can't have anything to say about unmet needs because I did my best. Therefore, be quiet. The fantasy could look like, this is, I'm going to say more about this in a minute, but it's more of like a generational cultural thing. But the fantasy that children owe unflagging allegiance and gratitude to parents at all times without ever, ever being able to address or describe or navigate through the negative or unpleasant aspects of the parent-child relationship. That is a fantasy. That is truly a fantasy that children ought to be obedient and grateful all the time without ever needing to address unpleasantness in the relationship or unmet needs. That's a fantasy. Another fantasy would be that the relationship is complete because the parents feel that their love for their children is complete. Okay, I am a believer in a higher power who I call God. I do believe that the only perfect and complete love comes from God. And that the more like God, with just my opinion, the more like God we are, the more able we are to give full, complete love. We are... we're nothing like God okay we are human we're fallible so this is a fantasy that because I love you so much I did everything for you and because I did everything I could do for you or I gave you everything I could give therefore that should be the limit of what you needed because basically what we're saying is there's no room for growth as a dyad or a triad what do I mean by dyad and triad a dyad is two people the parent-child relationship and the triad would be the parent parent-child relationship, if a child had two parents, okay, which is most often the case in the home, okay? So if we're in any of those fantasies, we're shutting down the pain of the child, okay? The driving force behind some of these fantasies, maybe if not all of them, is very often shame in the parent. Maybe the parent had abuse as a child or their own unmet needs that they've never looked at. They're just sort of living in their own unresolved hurt, unhealed trauma, unaddressed shame. And the thought, the actual thought of having failed in even the smallest measure at something so important as loving and raising their child is more than their heart can bear. And so the shame creates these fantasies. The shame silences the child. The shame shuts down the relationship and says, I can't face this. Very often that comes from sort of a broken, desperate kind of love. Like, I love you so much, I can't even ever imagine. I can't face the reality that I might have hurt you, right? And what that can give us is some compassion for the parent who hasn't dealt with their shame. They haven't healed from it. They can't hear anymore. There's no room in them. There's not an inner place of, hey, I'm human. I've dealt with my shame to a large degree. I don't beat myself up. I don't need to rake myself over the coals of life because I have made mistakes. I can hear you. But when a parent can't 
here when they are so connected to the false self i'm good i do good i only offer good i only intend good my motives are only good i mean that is just a false self that is not true that is a shame-based self-image when that is who the parent is there is no room there's not even an inch for you to say, yeah, but no, 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 there's no room. I need you to see me as I need to see me. And the reason why I need to see me this way is because I've got such deep unhealed shame. So I need you to contribute to my false self. I can't have you challenge that. And I will tell you, and this is, again, it's a place of compassion, but it's also really a place of danger because this really nudges up against narcissism. When parents recruit their children into the belief system of who the parent wants to believe they are, this is now a child meeting the parent's emotional needs instead of the other way around. And that's a pretty narcissistic engagement. But if it doesn't get to the point of narcissism, very often it's just shame and parents just kind of plug their ears. No, 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 no. I don't want to, I don't want to believe I failed you. I love you so much. I can't believe I failed you. Okay. Sometimes, and this is the piece I mentioned before, it's generational. And I see this a lot in my practice. You know, there's a big difference between parents under 40 and parents, really parents under 60 and parents over 60. I would say parents who are older than 60 don't always see ownership of their failure in the parent-child relationship as something parents even owe to their children. In this model, and again, this is generational, this is older generations, parents owe their children and they, they, they wholeheartedly embrace this care, protection, provision, guidance when necessary, but not much more. This is not a human to human relationship. It is a parent to child relationship. And it's older and it's a more traditional model of that relationship. And the way that it works is sort of because of the sacrifices that the parenting role requires, they don't owe the child any more than that. You know, this is sort of that old, I went through 36 hours of painful labor to bring you into the world. You know, it's, it's sort of the guilt model that I gave you so much. Therefore, you can't ask for anything more than what I gave you especially the deeper emotional needs for connection and reconciliation and acknowledgement and apology. I mean, those are complex needs in a relationship. They're deep. They're difficult. No, no. I gave you what I gave you, and you should be content. I'm the parent. You're the child. I don't owe you anything more. In this model of parenting, the child doesn't have the same rights as the parent. Okay, there's a real differentiation between the rights of the parent and the child. The child, even if they're 40 or if they're four, they don't have the right to be respected, heard, validated, or reasoned with. And the validation piece is big. The parent has the perspective. The parent sees the picture. If the child in any way does not see what the parent sees, the child is invalidated. It's never the parent's job to look within. It's not the parent's job in this model. And so the child is supposed to be grateful for what they were given without noticing any of the deficits. And if you notice them, you can't talk about them. Now, I want you to ask yourself, just using your logical mind, what does that do to a relationship? <laughs> what does it do to a relationship when you can't talk about the negative aspects of it? The relationship stalls. It stagnates. And it becomes a false relationship where I have to perform 
we have to perform gratitude. We have to perform peace and contentment with the relationship when there's so much more we want to say, but there's no room. What doesn't work here in this model is that the child didn't ask to be born. And it's very old fashioned to say this, but some of us who are maybe middle aged or older, we've all heard this, you know, I gave you life. (sighs) That's true. And life is a gift. It really is. But, you know, I saw this, I guess, I don't know if it was a bumper sticker or like a, it was a meme, some little moment of words, you know, just a compact vision of words. But it said, children have rights, parents have responsibilities. And I believe that's true. And if you're listening to this and you're in an older generation, you might be rolling your eyes, Vanessa, this is what's wrong with society. Okay, hear me out. I think there's room for growth here. I really do. I think there's room for moving into an adult-adult relationship with adult children who are coming to the table with thoughtful experiences about their own lives. When parents demand gratitude and nothing else, the child will rightfully feel that that arrangement is unfair, again, because the child didn't ask to be born. That's why we say children have rights, parents have responsibilities. Parents decided to have sex. (laughs) They decided to bring a child into the world. That's all their choice. The children are here, innocent, vulnerable, needy. So you can't then hang everything you give over their heads. I remember laughing once with someone. We were talking about what parents owe their children. You know, well, I put food on the table. And this person I was talking to kind of laughed and said, as opposed to what? Leaving us to starve on the street? (laughs) Like... Why? How much gratitude do we need to show for you doing exactly what you should have been doing by bringing children into the world? So the model doesn't really work anymore. I think we're living in an era where children do have a sense of more of what their rights are. So sometimes it's generational, why parents don't acknowledge, but sometimes it's cultural. In some cultures, and I'm going to group some, well, actually all of the monotheistic religions under this umbrella of cultural, it's simply not part of the understanding of the structure of the family for parents to be accountable to children. It's simply not. Again, in this model, the child has very limited rights, whether they're 4, 40, or 60. They have limited rights. The parents hold the rights in the family system, and the children are once again expected to just be obedient and grateful. The model, really the only model, parenting model, which enforces and reinforces the rights of children is the model where parents are accountable for their actions. That's really all we're talking about here, okay? AD's question is about like, how do I get along in a family system where my parents do not apologize? Like this is very hard because they keep doing the same thing. They're hurting me and they're not acknowledging it or apologizing for these things. The only model that's going to support that dynamic where parents acknowledge their wrongs is when parents accept that children have rights. And that sounds so simple. It sounds so obvious. But very sadly, it's not. It's not common. Most people still believe that the rights are on the side of the parent. What do parents need to be accountable for? Not only their actions, but they're inaction. And what do I mean by inaction? I mean the needs they failed to meet that went unaddressed, unknown, ignored. So here's the reality. 
Okay, no parent, <laughs> all my parents out there listening, this is so hard to hear. Okay, here, here's, here's some hopefulness, okay? No parent can meet every single need a child has. That is impossible. I'm going to read an incomplete list of needs, okay? This is incomplete. This is something that I hand out to my clients to start when they're at a stage in their therapy when they need to start validating their own needs. I might hand them this and underline, okay, what needs went met, what needs met unmet, which needs were really painfully unmet, what coping mechanism was attached to that need. Okay, that kind of self-discovery work, that kind of self-knowledge work. But I'm just going to read some of the needs that children have, okay? And this is all humans, therefore children. Autonomy. We have needs for choice, freedom, independence, respect, space, the spontaneity of our own personhood. We have a need for beauty, delight, complexity, fascination, simplicity, variety. That all goes under beauty. Here's a big one. We have a huge need as human beings for connection with others. And what's under that? Well, acceptance, affection, appreciation, belonging, cooperation, communication, Closeness, community, companionship, compassion, consideration, consistency, curiosity, empathy, inclusion, intimacy, love, mutuality, nurturing, respect and self-respect, safety, security, stability, support, to be known and seen, to be understood and to understand, trust and warmth. Whoa, that's a lot. That's just under connection with other people. Then we have connection with God. Okay, children need a spirituality. And I'm not going to tell you what that should look like. That is your choice. But they do need a sense that the intangible part of them is seen, known, heard, directed, acknowledged. Okay? So they need a sense of awe. That's important. Community in that awareness of the self. They need discipline. They need faith in something larger than themselves. If your faith is limited to yourself, that's a bleak life. They need growth. They need a sense of mystery. Children need quietness. They need revelation. They need smallness. They need transcendence. They need solitude. They need teachers. Children need to connect with themselves. They need curiosity, patience, self-compassion, self-exploration, self-knowledge, solitude, and time. We need honesty, authenticity, consistency, integrity, presence in other people. We need meaning, awareness, the celebration of life. Purpose, challenge, clarity, competence, consciousness, contribution, creativity, discovery, efficacy, effectiveness, hope, learning, mourning, participation, purpose, self-expression, stimulation, peace. We need communion with one another. We need ease, equality, harmony, inspiration, order, reliability. We need a sense of personal power, competence, confidence, desire, direction, respect and self-respect, self-knowledge. We need physical needs met. We need Fresh air, clothing, food, exercise, movement, rest, sexual expression, safety, shelter, sleep. We need touch. We need water. We need play. We need safety, boundaries, attachment, non-threatening presence of adults, predictability, quietness, reliability, trustworthiness, truth-telling. My gosh, that is an incomplete list. Can I say it again? No parent can meet every child's needs. You can't meet every need. These are the needs of human beings. Children are simply younger human beings. No parent can do this. Actually, I would say no couple can do all of this. This is why it takes a village, right? But we don't always have villages, do we? And if we have villages, sometimes we can't trust them. 
So parents have to face the demanding nature of the immediate needs of children by themselves day by day for 18 years. It's a severe task, is it not? So let's start by normalizing this for parents, for adult children, for adult children who have children, okay? No parent can meet every need. So if this is the assumption and it's a safe one to make, then acknowledging that some needs went unmet shouldn't be that hard, right? But it is. Because an unmet need is connected to emotional pain and relational disconnection. And no parent wants to face that they've caused that. It's antithetical to the love of a parent. So they step into denial, easier than facing reality. So ideally, we would understand that the antidote, again, it reverses the effects of dysfunction. The antidote to dysfunction is acknowledgement, acknowledging the dysfunction, and then apology. But what do we do when neither are present? So let's ask ourselves some questions, because I've just outlined some fantasies that parents get into, the shame that drives them, the generational differences that drive them, the cultural differences that drive them. And you might be thinking, holy smokes, my parents are all three. There's unhealed shame, there's pride, there's generational differences, and there's cultural differences. Okay, well, if that's the case, and they're not really willing to grow, we have to adjust our expectations. Look at your parents and look at yourself. Okay, if there has been a difficult relationship, is it a generational problem? Is it a character flaw in the parent? Or do they come from a culture or a religion that taught them that parents are always right and children owe their parents obedience and gratitude and nothing more? Because if you find yourself in any of those places, you're in a generational clash or a culture clash. The values have now shifted. 100 years ago, this was not a problem but it is today. Now, there have always been parent-child relationship problems. That is not new. It is a very close, intense, need-driven relationship on both sides. So children have always felt hurt and disenfranchised by their parents, and parents have always felt hurt and disappointed and even bewildered by their children, right? So that's nothing new. What is new is the expectation that parents ought meaning they owe their children listening, learning the child's perspective at whatever age, admitting their faults, and growing based on the child experience of the relationship. Now, there have always been parents who do this. I know parents who are in that older generation who just are this way, but they are actually more of the exception, not the rule. Nowadays, we expect this to be the norm, but it's not. And sometimes the pendulum swings way too far to the other side and the parents are subservient to the children, to the whims, to the wishes of the child. That is also a disaster. But if we're in this place where we can't get through, the dysfunction is there, what do we do? Well, a lot of times this question arises out of people who are doing their work. They're going to therapy. They're looking at themselves. They're struggling to break bad habits. They're trying to get into their heads and change their thoughts to healthier thoughts, to more realistic thoughts, to productive thoughts, and their behaviors are changing. And it's always interesting to me when I've worked with somebody for the first time, first time in therapy, they're newbies. They're nervous in the room. They've never been in therapy before. You know, I love working with people in that place because it's a really sacred connection to make for the first time with a therapist. And it's always interesting when they go home for the first time, whether it's a holiday, their birthday, something comes up, they go home. And what have we been working on in therapy? Feeling your feelings, okay? Not judging your feelings, breathing, (laughs) just being present, 
Okay, you're telling your stories, your life stories for the first time, and you're confronting your own shame. Okay, therapy is not about blaming parents and it's not about hating your parents, but it is about confronting yourself, right? And dealing with yourself, feeling your feelings, telling your stories, living in your body. So without exception, without exception, I cannot think of one time this has not been true. They all come back from their first trip home and they say the same thing. I noticed so much. These dynamics had been there the whole time, but they're now apparent to them. Why? Because they're feeling. They're not numb anymore. And they're so apparent you can't miss them. And they wonder out loud to me, how did I never see this before? Well, because you were numb. You were desensitized. You became accustomed to it. All of your coping mechanisms exist to survive that dynamic so that you wouldn't feel the pain. Or you were in denial. You didn't want to see it. You didn't see it because you didn't want to. You didn't want to face it. Or you were stuck in your family role. But what is therapy? Therapy is about becoming the true self, finding the true self within. You can't be your true self if you're in a family role. Those two things do not happen at the same time. Family roles keep you stuck. So you start coming out of that role, you start taking that layer of responsibility off yourself and you start opening your eyes like, holy cow. You know, if I'm the scapegoat, I'm noticing how I'm never heard. I'm blamed for everything. Or if I'm the hero, I'm noticing how everybody wants me to fix it. I've, this is oppressive. You know, people come back to therapy sort of awake because we can see it now. We can hear it now. And this is the most important piece. We can feel it and it hurts. Now what? Do we march into our parents' kitchens? All right, everybody sit down. I've been doing some therapy and you need a good talking to. That is a terrible idea. (laughs) That's an awful idea. Number one, they haven't asked for our insight. Pretty sure I've made this mistake in a number of different ways. I don't think I've ever sat anybody down in the kitchen. I didn't have that kind of authority in my family system, but I have surely tried to pontificate about what I think is healthy. And you know what? Nobody cares. ask you a question. If you're communicating and no one is hearing you, what is the point? You're going to march in there, sit everybody down, give everybody a good talking to? Or are you going to isolate, shut down, break down? All of these things happen. Why do they happen? Because we want to be connected. We want acknowledgement. We want apology. That's the antidote. That would reverse the effect of the pain of the dysfunction. We're after that. Now, some parents are open to this, and that's amazing. And so if your parents will listen, it is safe to begin conversations. You know, when this happened as a kid, I felt blank. It is a gift when parents will sit and listen. For years, this has been hurting me, Dad. Mom, I've never said this before, but I need you to hear me now. These can be, I will tell you, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. These can be the most healing, homemaking conversations that ever occur in the human experience. When clients can confront their parents and they've learned tools of communication, they've learned how to be empathic, they've learned how to communicate their needs, their feelings without conflict avoiding, without being steamrollers, (laughs) one or the other, where they're just in relationship communicating in a healthy way. These conversations change the world. Generations are healed when parents listen to their children. 
I've had clients, and this is these are amazing sessions. To be completely honest with you, this could I could only do this kind of work. I love it that much when adult children, my clients, bring in their parents. And Nashville's that kind of town. It's a very family-oriented town. So a lot of my clients, their parents live in this town. Vanessa, can I bring my mom in? Can I bring my dad in? I'm like, yes. I love connecting with the parent. My client and I already have a relationship. You know, the parents come in and they're, oh gosh, you're bringing me to a therapy session. It's just going to be all of my mistakes. I'm going to get yelled at. No, 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 no. You're a human being too. You also deserve to be heard. You had your own perspective. The difference between the parent and the child is the responsibility, not the humanity. It's the responsibility. Those conversations heal in such a way that the pain of the dysfunction is like washed away. It's incredible. But what do we do when that's not possible? Because that is AD's question. What if it's not possible? What if they don't want to hear me? What if they don't want to grow? What if they don't think they need to? Okay, that's a generational model. We don't need to grow. You're the kid. You just be grateful. Well, the first thing I want to say is breathe. In those situations, I want you to take a deep breath. When your heart's breaking, they're not hearing you. They're not giving you what you need. Your needs are legitimate, but they can't give it to you. Breathe, feel, and learn to feel your feelings without needing to move into a coping mechanism to numb yourself to them. This is learning how to tolerate your feelings, okay? You don't have to attack. You don't have to withdraw. You don't have to lecture. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to beat them up. Just observe yourself. Learn how to be a non-judging observer of yourself in that situation. And this is a lot of self-awareness. This takes a lot of consistent work to be able to do this, but to watch yourself in a situation and notice what you're doing. Remember that much of their denial, their inability to hear you, to accept what you're saying, to legitimize and validate what you're saying is coming from shame. And that can help us be very compassionate toward them. Even if it looks like narcissism, what is underneath narcissism? Shame. That is the root of narcissism. We get all caught up in the behaviors because they're painful. They're actually toxic. And I'm not saying you need to dive headlong into relationships with people who show narcissistic tendencies. That's a very, very toxic relationship. And there will be no antidote because of the nature of the problem. They don't think they're the problem. You're the problem, right? But we can still hold compassion. We can still remember that deep inside there is an aching child who's covered in shame. Now, we have to do some assessments, okay? And this is called being an adult, right? Children react when their parents don't give them what they need. They want something, they need something, they don't get it, they burst into tears, they cry. We can be sort of adult children when we react to not getting our needs met in the moment. So let's ourselves take responsibility for being adults. Let's lovingly assess the capacity of the situation here. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves not how old someone is numerically, but how old they are emotionally. I have gained a great deal of patience and perspective, really, and grace when I've said to myself, you know, it feels like I'm talking to a frustrated 28-year-old, not an 80-year-old. That changes how I interact. It changes my expectations. It sort of gives me the grace and the maturity to handle the situation when I remember that 
How old someone is emotionally should set the expectations for the relationship, not how old they are numerically. Remember that age does not mean wisdom. Some people get older and they never get wiser. And those who get wiser are those who have confronted their shadow, who can face what their mistakes are, what the darkness is in them. That is wisdom. It's being able to hold all of you. But many parents can't do that. Again, it's generational. It's cultural. It has to do with shame. There's a, like, Remember those factors. There's a lot of factors that goes into this. But you're not going to be able to change all of that. Sometimes you can just lovingly assess, who am I working with here? How old is this person really? And I'm going to talk about forgiveness for a minute. Because forgiveness is actually at the heart of this question. How do I forgive when someone's not sorry? It's harder. Let me speak personally. When people acknowledge their wrongs to me, I am a fountain of forgiveness. I forgive so much that I'll forget it ever happened most of the time. If it traumatized me, it's a little bit more. But if it was just sort of a wrong that came up in relationship, I really do forgive and forget. If someone doesn't acknowledge it, for me at least, and I think this is pretty universal, it is harder to forgive. It's harder. It's not impossible. When someone acknowledges the wrong, forgiveness has a better chance of working alongside restoration and reconciliation. There's usually more hope for reconciliation if someone acknowledges what they did wrong from the heart. But if there's no acknowledgement, and typically if there's no acknowledgement, there's no apology, forgiveness is for us. It's given to another person because we can't carry their wrongs and mistakes on our own backs. We're human. We also mess up. We also need forgiveness. So we carry our own wrongs. That's enough of a weight. We don't have to carry the wrongs of others in our hearts. We release them. We And here's a way to think about forgiveness. We release those wrongs back to them so that they can cope with and examine their behavior. I don't have to carry that. That's on you. I'm releasing it. And when I release the behavior back to you, because it actually is your responsibility, I can also release the emotion with it. I can release the anger. I can release the sense of injustice, which is anger, back to you. I can release the hurt. You're human. You messed up. You know what? That's yours to figure out. I've done my part. I've brought it to you. I've brought it to you as best I could, as honestly, as calmly, as compassionately as I could. And now this is your job. That's all I can do. So I release the wrongdoing and the emotions that accompany it back to you. And that is forgiveness. We are lighter. We are freer. Now let's talk about repeat conversations. This is when we circle around and around and around, but Again, we have the conversation. I have, oh my gosh, I've done this. You know, one of my great, great, great friends, Angela, listens to this podcast and I'm remembering, so she's going to laugh when she hears it. There is a specific, I, first of all, I've made this con- this call at least 20 times in our friendship, but there is one time for some reason I specifically, and maybe it's because I had a lot of shame about it, she got on the phone and I was like, I'm literally not calling you with anything new. <laughs> I have walked into the same hole again. You know, she just laughed and we laughed about it. But there was such an acknowledgement in me of like, oh, I am still wanting something from someone who cannot give it to me. And I'm still fighting the same battle. So let's talk about repeat conversations. Friends, you're hearing from someone who has done this wrong more often than I've done it right. I now don't bother with this. I do not try and push down people's walls. This is growth in my 40s. My 30s were 
me literally running my head into other people's walls. <laughs> it's a wonder I didn't give my, I had emotional concussions. I'm going to coin that phrase. We have emotional concussions because we're running our heads into other people's walls. Their walls are up. They do not want to change. They do not want to hear it. But we run our head into their walls. Why? Let me bring it home to the heart because we want connection. We want them to hear us. We love them. And in their own way, they love us. They just can't go there. So we repeat the conversation and we repeat the conversation. And we think that if we say it differently, we'll get a different response. I did this for decades. I would say my 20s and my 30s were one long repeat conversation with people that were not hearing me. They didn't want to hear me. They had no interest in hearing my experience and growing from it. Not at all. And I can't say that's always true, um, particularly my family, but it was mostly true. And I kept giving myself emotional concussions and then calling my ever-present and ever-patient friends. I did it again. I stepped into the hole and now I'm hurting and I feel abandoned. Okay, well, how often are we engineering our own abandonment by going back to people who do not want to do the work? They don't want to change. And again, I think this is at the heart of the question. Well, how do you live in relationship with people who don't want to change? Here's the deal. While they cannot meet the need that you're bringing to them, the wall that you're hitting is an unmet need, and you want them to meet that, I promise you they can meet other needs. They can. If we're talking about parent-child relationships, this is your parent. They met a lot of needs. Okay? So what do we do? We build the relationship around the needs that are met around the places that feel safe, around the elements that actually work. Well, Vanessa, that narrows this relationship down to like one conversation. Okay, you know what? First of all, I understand you. And secondly, I get it. You need to grieve. Friends, we have to mature. We have to engage a grief process in which we go from, no, I want what I want. I want what I want and I want you to give it to me. We go from that through grief to I want more than what I can have in this relationship and I'm letting it go. Guess who's in reality now? We are. We go from I want this with my parent and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to yell, scream, kick, reason. I'm going to draw charts. I'm going to get a pointer. I'm going to communicate by hell or high water, that I want this thing. No, we step into reality. We let go. We forgive, which is to release someone's wrongs and the emotions that accompany that wrong back to them. We go from that to, I want this, but it's not going to happen. Not today anyway. I want this with my child, but I can't have it. I want this with my parent. I can't have it, but I can have this. I can have this place of connection. And we grieve what we don't have and we settle into what we do. That is living in reality. But we cannot consistently for the rest of our lives punish people for not giving us what we want. It's just an unmet need. Now, Vanessa, that's painful though because this is a big unmet need. I get it. So let's talk about reparenting yourself. And this is maturity. This is growing in ourselves. It starts with validating your own needs. 
What is the first thing a parent understands about a child? They have needs and I am here to meet them. When you begin the process of reparenting yourself, you are now taking responsibility for your needs instead of seeing your parents as responsible for your needs. This is a seismic shift in your maturity. It's hard to get there. I'm not talking about denial. Oh, my parents were perfect. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the realization when you have felt the pain of the unmet needs and you are willing to say to yourself, I am now responsible for this. They are off the hook. Maybe you need acceptance. Maybe you need encouragement. You know, last week I put out the podcast about the miscarriage and it was so raw. I had such a vulnerability hangover on Monday morning. I opened my eyes and I was like, oh, God, it's out there. You know, so thank you for those of you who reached out. It was so encouraging. But You know, one of my best friends in Nashville, um, his family has really become like my family. They were at my wedding. Um, You know, they've just really been like parents to me. I've sat down with them and cried and gotten advice and just sort of, I, I can be a kid with them and it feels really good. Well, Bonnie is my friend's mom's name and she listened to the podcast on Monday and I got this text at 710. How are you doing, love? Amazing podcast today. You are brave. You are strong. You are real. I'm proud of you. And I know some of you who (laughs) crave hearing those words from a mother figure probably just got tears in your eyes the way that I did when I read them. When we're talking about reparenting ourselves, we're not talking about fully meeting every single need we have from within. We're talking about finding the need met by someone Remember, no one parent can meet all of your needs. That means your inner parent cannot also meet all of your needs. You need now to assemble the village. You with me? That's reparenting yourself. It doesn't mean that you now within yourself, because that's lonely. Oh, I have to meet all of my needs from within. Okay, well, that's lonely, right? It can be very, very hard to do that. But we now form relationships with people who supply our needs. We construct the village. Maybe you need safe laughter. Maybe you need guidance. Maybe you need help financially, whatever it is. But I want this to come from my parents, Vanessa. It's their job. Okay. I get it. I do. But are you going to fight your entire life for something you can't have because they can't give it? But my siblings get away with, okay, okay, I get it. But life is unfair. (laughs) Some people get away with things. It's just not fair all the time. Are you going to stay angry forever? Are you going to be in this place of frustrated, bitter longing forever? I'm going to address this very briefly because I know we're going long here. But what if it's your spouse? What if you're like, okay, I have these needs, but my spouse can't even, okay, go to couples counseling. This is a great time to seek therapy as a couple. Go to couples counseling, work on it, learn how to communicate your needs. So many needs go unmet in a spousal or partnered relationship because of the way they're communicated, not because the need is illegitimate and actually not because the other person can't meet the need. But if the need is not expressed, number one, If you think people should know what you need, so it's not expressed, or if it's expressed with guilt, or meaning you're guilting the other person, or with manipulation, or with aggression, all that need is not going to be met. We're human beings. We respond to safety. 
So we have to learn how to communicate in our relationships for our needs to be met. And then, again, we have to do a loving assessment of what the capacity is here. Because here's the sad truth again. Not every need is going to be met. Okay? Vital needs like emotional, physical, sexual, psychological safety are non-negotiable. Those you demand. You insist on 100%. But other needs, sometimes we have to grieve. That need is not going to be met. We have to assess what is absolutely vital to us and where there's some wiggle room. And we have to learn how to communicate. But we're living in fantasy if we think any one relationship is going to meet every need we have. As adult children, okay, who have adult parents, our job now is the job we wish maybe they would do, which is to grieve, step into reality, and let go. And that means in the relationship, we have to set some boundaries. I will go here. I will not go here. It's not safe for me here. I'm safe here. Does that make sense? It's our job now to reparent ourselves, and you have to assemble your own village. Not easy. Takes a lot of vulnerability, a lot of courage. It'd be easier if our parents could just do it, but they can't. So assess things lovingly. What's realistic? Set your expectations on the emotional age of something, not their chronological age. Grieve. What's on the other side of grief? (laughs) You're talking to someone who knows. Depth and freedom. And appreciation. We see life differently after we've let go of something. We can become so much more appreciative of what is there rather than focusing on what isn't. And that is also true in our parent relationships. So first of all, believe that you can let go of unrealistic expectations. You can reparent yourself. You can assemble your village. The love you need is out there in the world. It is. And it's also within you. You know, there's a phrase that I love from the 12-step world. Don't go to the hardware store looking to buy bread. (laughs) You get it? Some people just don't have bread to give you. Don't go to the hardware store looking to buy bread. All right, let's pause there. Thank you for listening. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Friends, it involves reparenting yourself. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to Substance, not Psychobabble. <laughs>